I want to encourage you when, uh, whenever I'm preaching or whenever anyone is preaching to you to uh, have the part of the Bible that is being preached from open in front of you. Um, I know that you know, lots of us are sort of more oral uh, learners and learn from hearing, but it's just such a um, privilege uh, to have God's Word and to have as many copies of it as we do, uh, to have the opportunity to have it open right in front of us and to uh, see for ourselves, see for ourselves what God is saying. So uh, I really encourage you, whether it's a case of uh, you know, bringing your own Bible on a Sunday, sometimes that's useful because uh, it's familiar with you and I don't know if, about you, but I kind of have sort of an idea of where on the page certain things are and uh, different Bibles, it's in different places, that can get confusing. Uh, something else I've uh, started doing is actually bringing my growth group booklet as well uh, because any notes that I might have made uh, during the week and that might be helpful are there and also because if I've been using this during the week then again the words are in certain places on the page and when I'm looking for them here they can not be there, uh, not where I'm looking anyway. Anyway, basic encouragement is please um, be in the word uh, as you're hearing it preached. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks, or you speak in your word to us, that you promised to do so, that you've also given us the promised Holy Spirit who lives in us, who takes that word, uh, these words written on the page, uh, which in and of themselves uh, may not be significant for us, and yet through your spirit, they are applied very personally to us. Thank you that you are a personal God in every way, uh, far more deeply than we can even understand. So we pray that uh, as we listen carefully this morning, you would do your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, also ought to alert you this morning to the fact that uh, my outline has changed slightly uh, from what's on the screen there. My intro is no longer against all odds. It is Jesus loves me. Uh, this may not mean anything to you, but if you're someone who cares about that and wants to cross it out, Jesus loves me is now the intro. And the third point's kind of been rolled into the second. Um, anyway. Oh, the reason for that is because this week I had to write a Bible talk. Uh, as many of you know, um, these talks, this Roman series I preached 12 months ago uh, down in Lismore, and as a way of uh, sort of buying some time so that I can get to meet you and get to know you all, I've been using uh, those sermons from a year ago here. But uh, I took a couple of weeks off to build a carport around uh, March last year, around Romans 5 and 6. And so uh, I'm having to write a new talk this week and next week, and hence later changes <laughs> after the uh, outline was printed. Anyway... I have an important question to ask you this morning, and it's simply this, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? Uh, I think it's a very important question because there's plenty of evidence, if you want to look at it in a certain light, plenty of evidence that perhaps God doesn't love you. Uh, the circumstances of your life could lead you to conclude that maybe God doesn't love you. You could be enduring all sorts of hardship. 
yourself or others around you, maybe. You could look at the broader uh, things that are happening in the world and think, where is God's love? Where is the evidence? Because I can see plenty of evidence that he doesn't love me or love the world. You could also uh, look at your own life and think, how can I be sure that God loves me when I see so much evidence in myself that is unlovely and unlovable? You could doubt that God loves you because you know that you're not worthy of his love. See, it's really, it's an important question and we need a really good answer to it as well. Uh, There's a Swiss theologian last century, um, probably one of the greatest, most profound thinkers, Christian thinkers of the 20th century. His name was Karl Barth. So profound that Hardly anyone can understand a word that he ever wrote. Uh, just a very, very deep thinker. And he was uh, uh, on tour. You know, back, this is back in the day when theologians were famous people uh, in the sort of 50s, 60s, perhaps, of last year. He was uh, last century. He was on tour in the United States uh, and speaking at universities and Uh, seminaries uh, in the United States and after one of his lectures there was a question and answer session and one eager young uh, Bible college student asked him a very difficult question. It was simply this, uh, Professor, uh, out of all that you have learned and all that you have studied, do you think you could summarise that in just one sentence? And without even pausing for breath, he said, oh yes, I can do that in the words of a song that I learnt at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was that great theologian's summary. And it's true and it's beautiful. How did he know? How did he know that Jesus loved him? Well, his answer was, because the Bible tells me so. It's a great, great answer because it points us back to God's word to confirm the knowledge that God loves us. What I want us to see this morning is not just that the Bible says it, though. The Bible doesn't, doesn't just tell us that God loves us. The Bible tells us how. God has loved us as well. And I'm sure that Karl Barth would agree with me on that point. How God loves us, and that is so much better than just being told that he does love us. So how does this passage then, Romans 5, and I think it is a really key passage for understanding how God loves us, how does this passage tell us that God loves us? Well, let's uh, start from the beginning, chapter 5, verse 1. Now you see the word therefore at the beginning, so he's picking up on what's come before. I think these first couple of verses are really a recap of what we've learnt so far. Since we have now been justified, remember justified means it's that law court language, we're no longer guilty, we are declared innocent by God. 
even though we are sinners. But since we have been justified through faith, God gives us trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he reckons that as our righteousness or our justification. Because of that, we have peace with God. No longer at war with God. The thing that made us at war with God, that put us at odds with God, our sin has been dealt with, and so we are now at peace with God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So our new standing, our new standing is that we live by grace. Uh, in our relationship with God. He has been gracious to us, kind to us. He has given us what we don't deserve. And so now we stand, and we stand in grace. Uh, I picture a sort of uh, smooth, calm pool. We're standing in this pool of grace. It's not the raging seas of sin and strife, but this calm pool of grace. And so we boast, not in ourselves, but in the hope of the glory of God. So we look forward, we look forward to the glory of God that will be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. So we understand our past, we were sinners, but Jesus died for our justification. That brings us into a present where we live by grace, in peace with God, and we look forward to a glorious future. It's good, isn't it? It's good news. This is uh, the relationship with God that we've been brought into through faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's this very interesting, very curious verse, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory, not just in the future when all things will be made well, but we glory in our sufferings. We glory, we boast almost in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I'll leave the next bit. Isn't that interesting? Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. It's a great chain of events. And I kind of look at that and think, wouldn't it be great if that's how it worked for me? Uh, It could go that way. Suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Is that how it works for you when suffering comes? You know, to be honest, for me, quite often suffering brings disappointment. Disappointment creates doubt, and doubt can take me down to despair. Doesn't that sometimes happen for you? What would make the difference? Like, what would make the difference between suffering producing perseverance, character, and hope, and suffering producing disappointment, doubt, and despair? Because we could go either way. Well, I think the rest of the paragraph explains what makes the difference. Hope does not put us to shame because, as in, hope is not an embarrassment to us, it's not an illogical place to land because. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, sometimes our sufferings do actually have this consequence in our lives. They do 
produce perseverance and character and hope in our lives. How does that happen? It, it actually shouldn't happen. It happens because we know, without doubt, that God loves us. And so we don't experience that suffering as you know, God's judgment or God's absence. Rather, we trust that even our suffering is somehow going to be used through God and his love to strengthen our faith. And so often when I've asked people, when have they felt that they have grown most in their relationship with God? The two common answers are this. When I have been in closest communion with God, when I've been reading his word and praying, and through times of trial. Those are the most common answers I get when I ask people that question. When have you grown most in your relationship with God? So often, trial has been used by God to strengthen our faith. Why does that happen? One, because we know God loves us, and two, because we stop relying on ourselves. When we're really struggling, and we know we can't help ourselves, we're more likely to turn to God. So. Because we know God loves us, even our sufferings can be turned into perseverance and character and hope. And we know God loves us because he has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, this knowledge or perhaps a feeling of love, God's love that we have, isn't just a desire, it isn't just wishful thinking, it is the work of God's Spirit wonderful, gracious gift of God himself, his spirit in our hearts, confirming that God truly does love us. And notice that it's not into my heart, but it is into our hearts. This is a common experience, a shared experience that Christians have, that the Holy Spirit who lives in us confirms God's love for us. And we can talk to each other about that. We can share that knowledge and that experience and build each other up in Christ. So how do you know God loves you? Because God has given you his Holy Spirit who affirms and confirms God's love to you as he has been poured out and and his love has been poured out into our hearts. But I wonder if for you that's still a little bit subjective. Okay. God's love has been poured out into my heart. I kind of experience it somehow internally, but is that enough? Well, maybe God knows our weakness, and there is more. There is certainly another reason that this passage gives us to be confident that God does love us, Uh, and that's in the next paragraph. That's such a wonderful part of the Bible. I love this next paragraph probably appear in my list of top three paragraphs in the Bible that I just love because I think it summarises the gospel so beautifully. And right at the heart of that is verse 8. How do we know God loves us? Because he doesn't just tell us. He shows us. God demonstrates. He does a demonstration. He does a practical in front of us. It's not theory. God demonstrates his love for us in this. In what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what verse 8 says. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
He doesn't just tell us that he loves us. He shows us his love for us by sending Jesus, while we were still sinners, to die on the cross for us. We know how important it is for love to be demonstrated, don't we? If someone tells you they love you, you might believe them, but I reckon you also want to see evidence. We want to see evidence that somebody loves us. We want to see confirmation that they love us. And so God gives us what we need. He doesn't just tell us, he demonstrates his love for us. And he does it in two ways. Uh, he, it's the timing of his love that helps us to know that he loves us and also the extent of his love. And I want to point to uh, three, three verses where the same pattern is used to reinforce the timing and the extent of God's love. Have a look at verse 6. At just the right time when we were still powerless. Verse 8. While we were still sinners. And verse 10, while we were God's enemies. Do you hear those three time markers or three, three uh, expressions of our situation where we stood with God? When we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, and verse 10, while we were God's enemies. Powerless, sinners, enemies, that's when God loved us. He didn't wait for us to be lovely. He didn't wait for us to prove our love for him. He didn't wait for us to take steps towards him first before he chose to love us. We were off in the distance. We were running in the other direction, powerless, weak, unable to do anything to save ourselves, caught in our sin, enemies of God, that's when he loved us. How do you know God, God loves you? Because of when he loved you. And what about the extent of his love? What did God do while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies? Christ died for us. God didn't just say, you know what, everyone, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm just going to pretend it never happened. Come on home. He couldn't do that and he wouldn't do that. There was only way, one way that he could wipe the slate clean and that was for his own son, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, to give up his life. The father gave up the son. That's what it cost God to love us when we were powerless, sinners, enemies. It cost him his son. How much does God love you? How do you know God loves you? Because he gave up his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to death, to death for you. The timing of God's love and the extent of God's love are demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross while we were still powerless and sinners and enemies. That's how we know, we know that God loves us. 
And if God loved us then, and if God loved us in that way, and here is Paul's logic uh, in these verses, how much more, how much more can we be certain that he loves us now? See, because now we are no longer his enemies. Now we are no longer considered sinners. Now we have been won into his family, adopted into his family. Now we are his sons and his daughters. If he loved us then, how much more can we be sure that he loves us now? You see? We can be absolutely certain. And so twice in those verses, Paul says, how much more? Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? How much more can we be confident that we will be saved from God's wrath through him? A little further down, verse 10, if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, can we have confidence that we will be saved through his life? You can have absolute confidence being a child of God, being restored to that relationship, given when he loved you previously, that his love will never fail, will never be removed. You can be confident that God loves you. How much more now that we are his friends? And then there's... I think in this passage, one further reason, a third reason that we can be confident that God loves us. And that we can see that as this how much more logic overflows from that first half of the passage up to verse 11 into the second half of the passage where Paul starts talking about Adam. Uh, Paul contrasts here the curse that flows through our connection to Adam with the blessing that flows to all people through their connection to Christ. So how do we know that God loves us? Because God has been at work since before the creation of the world to ensure that our sin would be overcome by his saviour. So he sets up this contrast between the first man, Adam, through whose trespass, sin and death entered the world, with the second man, Christ, uh, through whose sacrifice life uh, came into the world and conquered death. Now this uh, passage, I think, can get a little confusing, this second half of the passage, as the comparison is made between Adam and the effects of Adam's sin and Christ and the effects of Christ's atoning death. Uh, I think it's confusing because, on the one hand, he seems to be saying they're different, and on the other hand, he seems to be saying they're the same. So, uh, for example, in verse 15, he says, the gift is not like the trespass, so he's highlighting a difference. Then further down in verse 18, consequently, just as, and a couple of times he sort of shows similarities between the two. I think what we're meant to understand here uh, is that the gift is not like the trespass. The gift of righteousness through Jesus, the gift of salvation, is not like the trespass in that the gift is greater than the trespass. 
the gift is greater than the trespass. And so the gift conquers the trespass. Jesus, when Jesus came, uh, his, he gave his one life so that many could be saved to overcome the fact that when Adam committed one sin, many uh, fell into and followed him into sin. I think that's uh, what's being described. And so the reason this is a confirmation to us of God's love is because right from the very beginning, right from the very beginning, God was setting out to conquer sin and to conquer the effects of Adam's sin. God has loved us from the beginning. God has loved us from before the creation of the world. It's an everlasting love that will never be removed. And he has been at work through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to see that we would be saved, that we would come under his love and that death would no longer reign over us as a consequence of sin, but we would reign in life as a consequence of Jesus' sacrifice through our faith in him. So how do you know that God loves you? You know that God loves you because he has poured out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit whom he has given you. You know that sort of, that definite awareness that God loves you? That is God's Holy Spirit affirming God's love for you. How do you know that God loves you? Because he didn't just tell you, he showed you. When Jesus died on the cross, when you were still far off from him, when you were undeserving and unlovely, Jesus, the Father gave up his son for you. You can be sure that God loves you. And how do you know that God loves you? Because even though Adam's sin plunged the world under the reign of death, God has been at work since before the beginning to ensure that we would reign in life through the sacrifice of his son who conquered sin and conquered death and brought us back into relationship with God. You may not be the deepest theologian of the 20th or 21st century, and you don't need to be. You just need to be sure that God loves you. And the Bible tells you that he loves you, and the Bible tells you how he has loved you. Let's give him thanks. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you have loved us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. We thank you that that means your love for us is not dependent on our performance or on our worthiness. Your love is only dependent on your choice, your sovereign choice to love us and dependent on what you have done in order to love us, what you've done which will never be undone. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that you give, gave up your best for us while we were at our worst. Father, help us to know for sure and certain through your Holy Spirit who you have given to us that you will never turn your love away from us. How much more now that we are your friends can we be confident that you do indeed love us? Father, help us to carry that confidence through life. Whatever comes our way, so that our faith in Jesus would not be shaken, so that we will have that experience of uh, whatever our circumstances, whether in joy or in sorrow, so that we will know that you are with us and you are for us and you will never forsake us, that your love is solid and firm and constant, that your love is eternal, that your love will see us through every suffering and into glory. And Father, please uh, grow this love in us, multiply this love in us so that it is so valuable to us that it shapes the way that we live. That is, that it grows our love for you, that it grows our love for others, that we would love others as you have loved us, and that it would give us a desire and the courage to speak about your love with those who just don't know it, who haven't seen the demonstration of your love in Jesus Christ, and yet who, who can benefit just as we have if they, if they do see. Help us to be people who are ambassadors of the love of Jesus in the way that we live towards people and the way that we speak of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.